how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Lily Noelle Rogers is an adventurer, a dear friend and an amazing human. Lily has worked in the realms as diverse and exciting as live music event production, sober companion, photographer, food writer, world traveller and stylist. Also, what is it, like EMT, uh, drone pilot, professional dive instructor. (laughs) The list goes on. Yes, indeed. Traveling photographer, her Instagram is amazing. We suggest you check it out. So thrillingly, she was going to be subbing in for Rose as co-host while Rose goes on maternity leave, which is both glorious and heartbreaking. We will miss you terribly. We are so stoked to chat to Lily today. Sorry, I'm really emotional. (laughs) This actually might be the most we've all communally cried in any episode of Sober Sex. Also, trigger warning, we talk a lot about uh, childhood sexual trauma and what healing from that might look like. So if that's something that's challenging for you to listen to, skip this episode, but it, it's a really, really good one, and there's so much love here. We cannot wait to share it with you. Thank you for tuning in to Sober Sex, and I will see you when I'm on the other side of this new adventure. With a baby! Absolutely. I'm doing great. I've had a beautiful day in Paris uh, visiting at the moment and it's gorgeous and sunny and bought some amazing fruit and you know. And we are here in person for the first time ever to actually record a live interview. Like Rose and I have done it before uh, where where we're together in a room and the guest is remote. But this is the first time we've had a guest in person, which is very exciting. And super exciting because Lils has very kindly and generously um, taking over co-hosting the show with Louisa for me while I go on maternity and push a baby out. Woo! And And then then raise the baby. And then raise the baby. And then just figure everything the fuck out. So um, we always like to start the show with asking people what their pronouns are. What are your pronouns, Lils? She, her, for me. Thank you. Same for us. Yes. Yes. Confirmed. <laughs> Although today I've decided my pronouns are she, her, but also demon queen. Demon <laughs> you for me in third person. <laughs> How did you arrive at demon internet. queen? Somebody sent me a meme. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Basically. Um, and I, we, we, the question is, where are you? Uh, I am about six inches away from you and about one and a half feet away from you on Rose's gorgeous new couch. Yes. Oh, la, 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 la. La, okay. la, la. Perfect. In Paris. In yes. Paris! And visiting from Los Angeles for a little while. Nice. We are yeah. thrilled you're here. Uh, so how has pandemic life treated you generally in LA? You know, um... It actually has been sort of a a pretty serene and also kind of life-altering time for me. Um, You know, I always, if I'm ever talking about this, I preface by saying, like, I was fortunate enough not to have any sort of 
you know, any of my family or friends directly touched by COVID in any way that was, um, you know, that they were um, in the hospital or, or uh, died. But um, so I definitely know that my experience would have been different if that were the case. And I have a huge amount of, um, you know, sympathy for people uh, who had to deal with COVID in that way. Um, for me, it was actually like a really beautiful time because I felt like all that could happen was kind of taking it a day at a time. And I have a really hard time with sort of keeping it simple and doing things a day at a time in regular life. And I think it was like, because we literally don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, because everything could change, because we kind of are grounded and can't go anywhere. I was forced for the first time in years to just kind of sit and be and be present. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was really good for me. Um, and, you know, and I also met my partner uh, in the beginning of COVID. And um, God, like, I wonder, you know, you guys know this, but years before that, I didn't really have any consistent romantic relationships for anything longer than a month or two. And I got a really long term one. But then for maybe seven years, nothing major. And I honestly don't know if I could have gotten in this relationship in any sort of sustainable way if COVID hadn't been happening. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it was just because I got to slow down and sort of sit through, you know, previously, anytime I had a feeling, I'd just be like, I'm going to book a flight, you know, <laughs> and then you can't do that. And not that I would have, there actually wasn't any point I wanted to do that with this partner, but it kind of just allowed me to slow down and, and really get to know someone in a really beautiful way. So I'm grateful for what it brought into my life, certainly, you know, and it had had its ups and downs, as I'm sure it has for everyone else, but. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure because so much of your kind of identity has been about like traveling and adventure and yeah. like being able to kind of go where the wind takes you and find inspiration in that journey. So like how do you feel like your identity is changing around kind of staying put and like, you know, feeling entirely new in different roles as a result yeah. of the relationship or the pandemic? I mean, you know, honestly, I've kind of... My identity, you know, and I, I talked to you guys um, about this the other day, I think, but yeah, so I feel like my identity has changed a lot, um, you know, and I mean, interestingly, I don't know if my actual identity has changed a lot, but my sort of awareness of who I am and how I define myself, I guess, has changed, you know, and I think, you know, for a long time in sobriety, I kind of didn't know what my identity was, Um and I'm still obviously really on a learning curve with figuring that out, but I think I sort of attached onto things that I thought my identity should be, <laughs> you know, things that were exciting and different and all of that. And of course there are things I love too, but I was like, I'm someone who travels. I'm someone who does extreme activities. I'm someone who goes to eat at the best restaurants and does all these things that are different than how other people do things. And, but I realized that at a certain point, I had stopped doing those things completely because I love them and more because I just didn't know what else to do. And I <laughs> thought that's how I was supposed to live my life. And I thought that's why people valued me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've actually mm -hmm. talked to my partner a lot about the fact that even like sometimes when I'm sharing in, you know, a format of a 12 step group, yeah. I will, uh, <laughs> I will, you know, put those things right at the front of like, well, I've done this, 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 and that. And that somehow, you know, and when, Anton, my partner says, oh, this person really likes you or whatever. I always think it's because, oh, well, that's because I have a van that I travel in and because I travel the world and because mm -hmm. I do that, that's why they like me. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, they like you just because they like you, mm -hmm. you know? And so anyways, and, you know, great example is my partner has kids. 
and I've never even been around kids at all. Um, in fact, I was like the only kid in my family when I was growing up, basically. And so the kids were foreign to me. And, um, and you know, when you're being loved by a six-year-old, um, and, and I have to say his six-year-old really, really adores me, and his 13-year-old son really, really adores me, they don't care about any of that stuff. They just care about the authentic connection we're having. And so <laughs> I think for me, um, you know, one way my identity has really changed, and sorry, that was kind of a long-winded answer, but... A long-form podcast. We okay, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, you know, the one of the ways my identity's changed is I've slowed down enough to, like, really strengthen my relationships with the people in my, you know, life that are right in front of me. And, you know, my... Um, I've become someone that like has a relationship with these children, for example, where I feel like there's a, there's a give and take that I'm able to show up in a really present way. Um, the same goes for my family, you know, um, my dad had a stroke and has had lots of problems and I was able to show up in like a really present way and not just show up in action, but like show up as a human being. Mm. Um, and I think I was always just on the go so much before that I felt like my attention was always really split, you know? And now I definitely have a feeling of, like, showing up in a very sort of authentic way with the people in my life. So I think, and and I think my identity is still the stuff that I love doing, that I was sharing about, but it's not like it has to be that way. Mm. And I'm not like, you have to do this because this is what people expect of you. I'm like, Mm. I'm going to do what I love because I love it. And Mm. if that makes any sense. Totally. Lou, I'm curious. Did you have any of that when we went into the pandemic? Did you have any of that? Well, people are attached to me because of (coughs) that Mm. persona. That's really interesting. Like while you were answering, I was thinking about it. And actually I I had a a lunch with uh, Perrine Lafaisseur who we'd had on a few weeks ago. And Mm. we were talking about this idea of like, a kind of shattering that happens yeah. when the thing that you think that makes you yourself is no longer like on the table mm-hmm. and how to like a carry on and be like kind of surrender to it like find it enjoyable like and on and one hand like I had my first gig yeah. back last night so it was like Yay. yeah <laughs> and it was like reconnecting with this part that had kind of been hung up in a closet for, you know, 16 months or whatever. And the other part being, like, I th- it's it's weird. Like, I missed that part of the identity, you know, that, like, the doing this thing that kind of gives me value in the mm. outside world. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, and maybe you're experiencing this, like, coming to France and kind of having the opportunity to, like, be back in that, like, explorer mode and, yes. you know, like, not just kind of grounded. And on the other hand, it's like it was a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> To, like, put it back on and be like, I guess this is my DJ suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, 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 and finding, like, you know, the, the genuine kind of, hum- like, it's, it's kind of um, a relief to discover that ge- the genuine human connections can feel very, like, nourishing and authentic. And it yeah. doesn't, and, like, that actually kind of has nothing to do with my idea of who I think I am in these relationships where, mm-hmm. like, you pay me to come to your party and like give music and act cool or you, you know, like you like me because I know the coolest restaurants and I've been to all these different places. It's like, it's like, actually, no, I like the, the relationships that I value in my life kind of on the tail end of this thing or have kind of nothing to do with that and can be fulfilling and nourished by those facts, but they're they're not the kind of core of them. Hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. 
You know, yeah, I really love that. And it's sort of like the, probably like the DJ suit fits a little different after <laughs> COVID. And for me, like it feels a little different being here than I, than I'm used to. And, you know, I've changed, I've, it's, it's a good barometer for seeing like how change. much change has happened. Yeah. And, you know, it, it actually, I was thinking too about, you know, like I, you guys know, but I, you know, got this pretty, you know, crazy sprinter van after I sold my house uh, a couple years ago. And when I first got it, I was like brutally tough with myself about like, you go out and you find the coolest places to camp. And if it's not incredible, like you're not doing it right. <laughs> and, you know, and I got out there and I found it's actually really hard to find places as a sing- as a woman alone mm. to camp where you feel safe mm. to find, you know, some nights it's like, you know, people will just go to a Walmart when they're in a van or Walmart parking lot. But I found like, I'm not good with that. Mm. Like, and to kind of let myself off the hook and be like, it's okay if my identity is someone that, isn't just this wild, crazy, and free person, but is someone that is, you know, free, but also protects themselves. And so Mm -hmm. how do I, like, give myself permission to, let's say I can't find a place, I'm going to get a motel room somewhere for Mm -hmm. the night, or whatever, you know? And and this sort of, like, I feel like the harshness with myself has really, like, the volume has been turned down on that a lot Mm -hmm. in terms of just, like, being honest with myself about what I need and not so much about what I think other people are expecting of me. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, other people are expecting that I'm out at epic spots in my van every night, you know? <laughs> Nobody's thinking about yeah. it. But, <laughs> but I, I also wonder, you know, I think that, like, because the content of the, the podcast is very much about, like, sober sex, this idea yeah. of, like, I wonder how... Our, romant- our relationships, romantic or otherwise, kind of change our own value systems yeah. of, like... Wait, would like would my partner want this for me? And not that yes. being like this fucking patriarchy, like I can't do it because the man thinks I'm weak. It's like, it's like actually somebody really wants me to be safe, and so yeah. I have to consider yeah. my own safety in a different way because like these kids are expecting me to like show up, you know. Absolutely, yeah. That's a really that's a really good point, and I think it's just like a good mirror of seeing like <laughs> I haven't had like a real mirror for some time because a lot of things I just kind of made my own choices and I prided myself on I do what I want when I want. And I kind of realized how nice it is to have someone there to sort of be reflecting some of that back to you. And you can go, oh, yeah, I never really felt that good doing that. And maybe it, that's something I can kind of <laughs> find different ways to take care of myself. I yeah. love that in, like, a relationship that can be sort of like the permission slip in a way that yeah. we've wanted to give ourselves for a long time. And certainly I feel like that. And not that I needed somebody else to come in and be like, it's okay if you take care of yourself or it's okay if you want to stay home or it's okay if you're not being exciting or you don't want to do a job that's exciting. It's okay if you're nurtured by cooking and um, fucking, I don't know, making a nest. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, it's not that I needed that, but I I think we nurture each other, especially like because we're all close friends, right? We nurture each other in that way and kind of give each other permission in that way. But certainly my relationship has been vital in that. I didn't realise how harsh I was with myself until I was in a relationship. He was like, you know, he would say things like, why are you spending time with that person? You always come back drained. Or why do you persist in going out and doing that you never seem to have a good time and I'm like this is what I do yeah this is what I do and he was like well well, I had a great night I just stayed on the couch and didn't speak to anyone I was like you fucking bastard and I would like secretly (laughs) resent him because he had such like great ways of taking care of himself or just not showing up in places he didn't feel comfortable and I was like damn I want some more of that and I like that we can kind of that can be a thing in a relationship without being 
a kind of domesticated housewife and that's okay too if that's like something you want to roll do you know what I mean I that love there, that. yeah there can be a, a time where it's like oh it gives me access to a part of me that I haven't allowed mm-hmm. myself to sort of voyage to before yeah or yeah. that I, like I had a hard time like I remember I was kind of prior to getting into relationships I had a really hard time kind of not working like it, when I'm single I'm very much like in workaholic mode just mm. because I'm like oh, well I better be fucking busy and then like yeah. just having like a partner to kind of like serve is the wrong word even though that does kind of play into the dynamic but like to kind of show up for if, mm. that I like it's actually not that cool <laughs> to be like no honey I can't I don't I, it's Sunday I know it's Sunday but I, I, I can't I, I can't. don't have space for you <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's a, it's a good lesson because like yeah. I don't think all alone that ever would have like hit me as a priority to like yeah, yeah. tend to the the connections yeah Absolutely. and it's appropriate for this season like yeah that we're all in I guess in a certain way yeah. so let's <laughs> dive into the conversation about sex yeah so we like to open up this part of conversation um with a question around what were the first messages you received around sex and sexuality so you know that's a good question and I I want to try to remember kind of early, early things, but what I remember most or what's really imprinted on my psyche or the messages I got were that were kind of the first negative messages I got, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I think my family was fairly open in talking about sex and there was, I grew up in Berkeley and there was this store, Good Vibrations, that was like a sex toy store and I remember every now and then they would like come back with a bag from there and ah! I kind of knew what it was sort of thing. But generally speaking, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I will say too, like as we're talking about this, you know, my family was open about it. They were like accepting of it in a lot of ways. And and yet there were other messages too, but you know, when I got my period, I remember my mom had all her closest women friends come over and tell me about when they got their period and we drank champagne and like talked about (laughs) me getting my period, which is like, but there (laughs) was definitely like a mindfulness around all of this. And it was a, it was nothing that was like really taboo and in some ways, but then, you know, I really got a negative message around sex um, when I was in seventh and eighth grade, you know, it's so funny we're talking about this because I'm, I've been writing and I wrote about it today. And, um, I had an experience where, you know, I had met, I had kind of been a bit of a wallflower for a while at a new school. And then I met this boy that was like the really popular boy in school and we were dating and I felt like my value was, you know, that I had value because I was dating this person. Mm. Um, you know, and he went out of town for a Christmas break and I landed in a room with his two best friends who then basically, you know, uh, urged me and in a way that I didn't feel like I had a choice to do things to them. And, you know, I was writing about it today and I don't often like explore that in any detail. Just, Mm. I don't know. I don't, I, for some reason I don't. Um, but you know, the message, um, the message I got was that that was my value to other people, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then what happened is, you know, I was told by those people not to repeat it to anyone, but then I went to my boyfriend and I said, this happened. And of course it wasn't, the blowback wasn't on his friends. It was on me mm-hmm. and everyone in school found out and just tormented me for until I basically had to leave school, you know, and in a very antiquated way of dealing with things, after several months of just being, I mean, like, tortured at school physically, sexually, emotionally by other kids, um, 
you know, I, somebody urged me to go to a school counselor and I went to this counselor and the counselor called me and my parents in a room with him and his parents, or the, all the boys that had been tormenting me and their parents. And we, I had to like confront them. Oh my and God. it's just one of those things that you're like, I'm so glad we've learned more about how these experiences shape people. So for me, this idea of like this sort of group condemnation, this sort of public ridicule, this sort of like you're alone in the world, um, you're loathed for your sexuality, and yet that's the only thing that's worth a shit about you. You know, like that, those were the messages I got. And, and I remember, you know, even with my parents, I don't know why this really stands out in my memory like it does, but I remember my parents found out about these, the thing in the room with the boy from another parent who called, or with the boys rather, found out about it. And, you know, another parent called and told them about it. And, um, and they, for some reason, they took a sheet of paper out and they wrote like a multiple choice thing. And they said like, what happened, you know? And A was like kiss and B was like, touching and C was like mouth stuff and D was like sex and they wanted me to circle one of the options and I just remember feeling like why does that matter like no like what about like comforting me you know mm -hmm. and 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 I think that like as things with parents go they were probably just trying to find out like do we need to get her on birth control do we need to get her tested like what happened but I just remember feeling like very alone and like why you know so the message was sort of that like a real harshness a, a group condemnation a group ridicule like me as sort of a sexual object and um you know just sort of having this enormous amount of shame around my sexuality but really that that was my inherent worth was to offer that to other people and so even like specifically oral sex became a thing for years that like I just sort of felt like if anybody was ever even just meeting with me and going on a date with me, that was just exactly what they wanted. Mm. And that's just so devastating as a teenager that that was kind of my experience, you know. Oh my God. I'm so sorry, Lily. And thank you so much yeah. for sharing so vulnerably about yeah. that. And just to say I hear you and that sounds really painful. Thank you. I mean, like, I know that I kind of knew vaguely what happened, but, I, like, I love you so much, and I'm so I grateful that, like, yeah. you're safe enough to talk about this here. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. No. Thank you. <laughs> I love you. No, and you know what else is crazy that I'll just say while I'm sitting here is, like, I was, my whole life was impacted by this thing that happened, you know, mm -hmm. um, and... And for the longest time, I would have therapists and other people. And, you know, I'll just be honest, like, there's other history of rape. The first time I ever had sex was by rape. Like, there's just a lot of stuff, right? Um, but, like, the sort of seminal event that happened was this bullying. And it, I don't even know that it was the thing that happened with the boys. It was, like, the bullying that happened. Yeah. That was traumatic, but the, like, wholesale condemnation, mm -hmm. like, the scarlet letter I felt like was on mm -hmm. my forehead, mm -hmm. like that sort of cast out from the community. Mm. I mean, that was like the most painful thing. And I've, I've, you know, sought out a lot of help since then. And I'll have therapists say like, that's major trauma, that's major trauma. But even to this day, I have this feeling like, well, that's not enough to have made me as fucked up as I was. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, other people had this and other people yeah. had that. And, and, it's so crazy because even now, like, that's my vulnerability and sharing it as I feel like, well, 
that doesn't give me the permission to have acted the way I did later, you know, or, or to have like complex PTSD, or to have like complex PTSD. The, exactly. Like I didn't go to war. Um, you know, I didn't, you know, have incest in my, whatever it is, I can always find somebody that had it worse than I did in my mind. And yet there was something about this community rejection mm. that wounded me worse than anything else that ever happened. You know, I do wonder if that kind of other people have had it worse kind of thing is, us trying to make sense of it because me too I've been through very different circumstances very different situation and actually the fallout and the lack of care that was taken afterwards when I thought I was going to responsible adults to deal with the situation yes was actually the thing that has left me more fucked up than the thing that that actual was that I can kind of get my head around now and think oh okay whatever but I wonder if we do that to ourselves as a way of kind of like self-preservation of taking care yeah. of ourselves of like I can't really I need to be a little bit in denial around this yeah because to fully accept what does that mean you know yeah or if yeah. I look at actually how bad like how traumatic or how bad that is like how on earth can I recover <laughs> like how can yeah. I how can I reconcile my actual feelings with this event so it's like it wasn't that bad let move on yeah but yeah. like then you get kind of stuck in like a, a loop, a loop. Yeah. <laughs> forever well, until and know. that was a coping mechanism for sure you know and like of just saying I if, if I sort of took it all in at once I mean that would have just mm. devastated me mm. you know and, and it did in a lot of ways but I started drinking around the same time as right. this all happened, you know, and curious, um, you know, I, I, I do think, and it's so interesting because there's different kinds of trauma. And I think in terms of, you know, seeing things in a, like a war scenario, for example, I mean, that's like horrific and a, and a, and a trauma, but almost a different kind of trauma. But the interesting thing about the kind of trauma that we're talking about is it's always in some way been my fault to me, right. you know, and that's mm-hmm. always come up. And it has, and it's comp, it's interwoven with my sexuality still. And mm. I mean, I'll be totally honest with you guys. I was writing about it today and I was feeling angry and upset and I wanted to see what these boys were doing on Facebook mm. to just make sure that they looked like their lives weren't that great. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I was simultaneously turned on. Yeah. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. You but, know, but like that's, I guess, normal with trauma. Yeah. But then I had this immense shame, shame reaction yeah. because I like have so much um, sadness about that this happened yeah. and, 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 and certainly there's a lot of feelings around it, which makes it complex PTSD, <laughs> right. I guess. Right. <laughs> right. Well, but I mean, it's interesting too, to kind of not like to too much armchair, you know, a, a psychiatrist, but the idea that like we open the conversation about you talking about kind of like being in a healing and nourishing relationship with a partner that like loves, loves you and feels really mm-hmm. safe. Yeah. And then simultaneously, and like, and in that the kind of performative aspects of like I'm yes. very concerned about how other people see me mm. yes and then like and then being like let me make sure those fucking dudes are having really shitty lives. yeah exactly <laughs> like oh like okay, last I, I checked their lives look pretty sad you know <laughs> yeah. let me just make sure they didn't get win the lottery or yeah. <laughs> but I wonder though like you know I heard it was Chris Gethard on Jamila Jamil's podcast um talk about like the bullying that he experienced and the idea that, like, one of the kids who broke his brother's shoulder, like, never got any repercussions because the the, the school, when his mother went to confront the school, was like, uh, his father is abusive alcoholic. So if we suspend him, he won't be able to... Get like, out of the he house. He won't be okay. Yeah. And therefore, we can't do anything. And so the bullies basically got to say, like, breaking another child's bone yeah. will not have any consequences. Wow. So, 
so it it sent this message that like to the kids who were being bullied that they just better like suck it up and figure out how to fight and the bullies that like nothing bad was going to happen to you so I wonder what the consequences were and what messages you received as a result that's a you know I I think I received the message that um well there's a couple things I when I had to sit in that conference room with those boys they all got suspended for a few days and then everyone in the school hated me even more because I got these you know popular guys suspended and if I had just been you know shut kept my mouth shut or whatever and so I think the messages I got were like there was a lot of like just care for me as a human being that fell through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And so I think the messages I got were just kind of like deal with it, you know, like there's something wrong with you, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that like this is what you're valued for now. Like this is you. And, and also what you're shunned for. And like, also what I'm shunned for. Exactly. <laughs> and complicated. So it became this comp- this this complex, you know, back and forth of this is my way that I, you know, thrive and survive in the world Mm. and this is what people loathe me for but this is all I know how to do and this is you know like I remember when I left that room where that thing happened with those two boys and I felt devastated even then by what had happened and I remember thinking well at least we're going to be friends now or at least we're going to be close at least they, they like me you know and like and that was not it couldn't have been farther from the truth about the way they treated me after but you know Something else interesting that happened, which I love to, you know, I I haven't thought about in a long time, but, you know, much further down the road, you know, I'm probably 28, um, I'm many years sober, you know, eight years sober, whatever, at that point, I walk into a diner in like the valley in LA, which is not where I grew up, with my partner at the time, who was, you know, wonderful, sweet guy, we walk in, we sit down, we're eating, and this guy walks up to me who just looks wrecked, like, greasy and tired and kind of overweight and all of that and I'm like who is this and it was one of the guys oh, man. and he was just like how are you and I was just like whoa and I just realized that like this is this person who I'd kind of been you know making larger than life mm-hmm. for a really long time and I was able to have like a degree of sort of um I, I don't want to say compassion but just sort of understanding you know, and I later found out his mom had cancer, and he had stuff he was reacting to. So it kind of reminded me of what you said about this guy had stuff happening at home, and yet the buck should have stopped there. Like he right. should have still received consequences, you know. Mm-hmm. And same goes for this situation. Like super sad what's happening at mm-hmm. home. I really, you know, there should have still been like a real conversation about what what happened. Instead, it was just like sort of felt brushed under the rug. Yeah, you know? that sounds like the kind of emotional like mediation never happened yeah exactly the emotion that's a really good way to put it like the sort of nuts and bolts of the thing they're like this is what happened and this is what will happen to you but like (laughs) but yeah multiple choice but like it kind of got yeah god and so how do do you feel like how did things kind of evolve from that yeah well i mean i think to be honest like my um you know that became sex became like what I kind of I used it as a tool of just like this is how I connect with other people mm-hmm. you know for a really long time and I knew that at a certain point in my life that was a way to kind of you know get people to do things and I I to be totally honest up until kind of recently in my life I didn't really like sex that much hmm. but it felt like that's the thing you do to get people to fall in love with you yeah, it's power and it's power and at the end of the day like I wasn't even that interested in sex. I just wanted people to fall in love with me. Like, I just wanted someone to love me. And so I wanted, 
I felt like, well, that's what you do so that people fall in love with you. And not only that, you have to be this, you have to be amazing in bed. And for a long time, I didn't have orgasms. And for me, that was, I performed and I had these big reactions during sex because, you know, if you're laying there and being honest about how you're actually feeling, like nobody falls in love with that. You have to be this like wild sexual vixen where it's like, oh my God, we're so fucking connected, you know? And like, so I was really inauthentic about that for a long time. And it was really, you know, and it really was power for me. And, And I think like, you know, I've actually gone back and forth with my therapist about like sex is power and love is power. And it's like, I don't think power is really meant to exist in the same place necessarily. And maybe, I don't know if you think differently about this, but like really like using sex as power, like that's not really fruitful for me necessarily, you know? I mean, it can be empowering if that's like, I don't, you know, if that's a way that I want to, if I'm choosing to express myself that way, but just as a tool for power, it sort of feels like Mm -hmm. it left me feeling not very powerful and pretty empty. And so, you know, years and years sort of sex being that way and, you know, in a relationship my first seven years sober basically or or a little bit into my first, you know, ten years I guess I'll say. And then, um, you know, a lot of sort of recreating elements of the middle school scenario with 12-step groups as a sort of larger community you know, having an affair at one point where I felt like I got shunned, mm-hmm. um, being with people that were inappropriate for me or, or treating other people poorly and feeling like I was burning bridges. And I sort of just, you know, there's there's something in the literature of one of the programs I'm in that talks about, you know, you say you're done and then the next day you find yourself just pounding on the table saying, mm-hmm. how could I have done this again? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, I felt like that way more with sex than I ever did with substances. Like where I just felt like, I'm done. This will never happen again. Like, there is no way I will ever do this again. And then once again, here I am. I've done the same behavior. And it feels like the deepest, deepest behavior that I have, you know? Well, it's so interesting because I think, you know, there's a lot of debate, strangely, about whether sex addiction is a real thing. Because it's not a substance you can become physically addicted to. But I definitely hear you talking about, like, pounding the table, saying, like, how did we get here again? You know, like, I don't want to do this. And yet it's happening. And, like, if if there's a definition of kind of what being addicted to something feels like that like despite negative consequences you're back at it like for that sure like it for sure yeah and the complete powerlessness around that and just like knowing better like having all the knowledge you know mm-hmm. having all the information you know thinking it's going to be different this mm-hmm. time think you know fantasy being a big part of things for me you know see you know thinking well it's not like that this time because of this or that and we're meant you know it was all lined up in a way that it means it was meant to be this way or whatever and that really manifested for me um and I had as you guys know a job for many years where I traveled full-time and so I would sort of get whisked into these romances in different cities where I was and then leave and it all felt like so fantasy based you know so I think there was a lot of dysfunction um you know around sex for many years in, in sobriety and everything, you know, and that was really the coping skill. I mean, even you guys know this, my first year sober, I was in jail. And when I was in jail, I was writing like 10 different guys in different prisons that all thought they were my boyfriend. Cause I just kind of <laughs> thought that like, that was the level of sort of engagement that I felt like I needed. Mm. You know, that was where I felt like once again, I got my value and I just wanted love and you know, all yeah, that. But it's so interesting though. Cause again, like I think that like, 
as women especially like as people with histories of trauma this idea of like wait was this like it's easy to look at the dysfunction as the kind of like the bad dog element you know as opposed to like the seed of the problem being this the, the messaging around sex which is like in fact if you look at the system that was kind of created with this first event like it wasn't in fact dysfunction it was yeah. like following a totally functional system yes. that was not healthy yes. you know but it was functioning as it was designed to function absolutely you know and i think that like so much of the work around like i have a, a, a sponsee and a sex or two sponsees in sex inventory right now and this idea of like kind of reframing that work that we talk about often on this podcast of like instead of looking at like where are my bad dog be like mm-hmm. what is the what is the pattern that if I don't arrest it becomes a prophecy what is the system yes. that has been created by old ideas that no longer serve me and like yes. I'm so grateful to know you on this side of that as, and like through the kind of evolution of like mm-hmm. in fact like Yes, deep into recovery, I think we can all talk about. Maybe not Rose, because you met Mikey immediately and, like, really healed in such a profound fucking way. So, it, it's literally a miracle. I didn't know you before yeah. this, but, like, from everything you've told me, it is a, it's a, like, gift from the Lord. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but this idea of, like, that shit can be so pervasive within within like long-term sobriety unless we look at it specifically and the fact that like we get to hold space for these conversations is something that I'm so fucking grateful for Mm, yeah because like there is healing possible it doesn't have to be like that it doesn't have to be the kind of status quo and I think like you know to kind of pivot to the next idea of like so what did your you said you started drinking around that time which is like oh my god of course. Of fucking yeah. course you did. And, like, have you ever spent time around a seventh grader? Like, that's a child. Like, I think oh. of, like, 22-year-olds as children. <laughs> I like, mean... It's like, they're like for, 12. No, it's crazy. And, I mean, now I'm, like, around a 13-year-old, and I'm just like, oh, my God, to right. think oh. that this, you know, like, mm-hmm. that I was this small and this, you know, mm-hmm. like, I felt like I had a softness and a sort of naive, like a very naive and curious side to me before all this stuff kind of happened. And I do feel like that sort of just went, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, but I did start drinking then. And what's interesting is like, I don't feel like it's even started as being fun for me. It was like, it immediately was a coping mechanism. It Mm -hmm. was like this, I know this is going to happen today when I go to school, but I can like keep my eyes on the end of the tunnel where there's something waiting for me where I can numb out and like, mm-hmm. and I drank to like go. I didn't like, it wasn't like a fun thing in the first years. It was really like, get me out of my skin for just a brief period of time yeah. so I can do it all again tomorrow. I mean, you know? And again, like it can look, I think it can often, we can frame our behaviors around, you know, substance abuse or sex as like, the bad symptoms of alcoholism or it can be like oh that was a creative adjustment to the situation that allowed you to survive yeah like thank you alcohol lily is with us today you know like you didn't fucking check out like you know of this planet (laughs) no and i'm you know and i'm honestly so glad everything happened exactly the way it did and that i didn't have like a sort of you know middle of the road experience with Mm -hmm. alcoholism that it like because i you know you guys know i got sober when i was 20 and like now I've had to I've gotten to live a whole life really sober I'm 36 now almost 37 it's crazy um and I like would not have wanted it to be any other way you know 
So how did that happen? How did you end up getting sober? Well, um, for the listeners, <laughs> for the, the you guys know well, yeah. But um, well, you know, I uh, I sort of went through places of being, uh, you know, I was drinking alone a lot at first, and then I became a blackout drinker and a partier with my friends down the road. And then, you know, I came down to go to school in Los Angeles away from my family. And for the first time I was alone and I just wild out, you know, um, I was drinking, you know, I found cocaine and I immediately started selling cocaine, <laughs> um, not doing a very good job. I only had the money to buy it once and then I didn't do a very good job selling it. So I didn't have any money to buy it again. Right. So this sounds familiar. Yeah. And <laughs> And, um, I think you guys know about this, but I, uh, but it's semi-relevant to this podcast, so I'll bring it up. Um, I was in the, I was looking in the USC school newspaper and I needed money and there was a thing, there was one thing like for like egg donation, you would get $5,000 to give your eggs. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. But you had to get drug tested. And I was like, oh, that's not going to work. And then the <laughs> other thing was this like waitressing job that they said $2,000 a week waitressing. And I was like, whoa, wow. what? Yeah. So oh, I showed up for this interview and it was like under a bridge in downtown LA in this like weird <laughs> building. Is this the Red Hot Chili Peppers song? <laughs> yeah. Under the bridge. This is exactly where it's downtown. They, the song's about me. I've so. been yeah. <laughs> um, but I went there, and it was like a escort situation, and I like except how they're advertising in the school newspaper. Office. Except, That's yeah, so fucking but, wrong. I'm yeah, just, why is no one vetting that newspaper? Exactly. And what's crazy is it wasn't even like it was sort of a very sad place because um, it wasn't so much actually about sex as I, I think these kind of places are sort of and I, there's a name for them but they're common and like I think in Japan there's certain things it's basically just like you keep the guy company for the night and you stay in this club and you just sort of hang out and dance with them and talk to them and you know maybe if you can sneak a kiss or a touch or whatever you do but you basically it was this bizarre situation where you sit in this room and in these sort of high back chairs with all these other girls and then a guy comes in and points at you that you're the one he wants. Oh my god. And then yeah. you know, and of course this triggered all my sort of special weird stuff of like I got picked a I lot and so yeah. I got chosen, you know. But going and you know, and this was how I like made money enough to keep buying cocaine for a while, you know. And then everything kind of imploded and um, I got kicked out of the sorority that I was bizarrely enough in uh, because of the coke and the escort-ish job, you know, and ended up dropping out of USC and, uh, you know, ended up shooting meth for the next year and a half after someone I met in rehab. I left with them and got into that with them and uh, lived out of my car if I was lucky enough to have a car for the next year and a half in motel rooms and shooting meth and hanging out with some crazy people that had spent most of their lives in prison and doing a lot of credit card fraud and I mean so it went downhill really fast and so for me I got sober you know I, w I was out on bail for seven felonies I had taken the charges for a guy for gun charges and all sorts of other things and I was out on bail and I got arrested again and there was no more bail and I just had to like I mean it's kind of like what I was saying about COVID I just kind of had to sit and be and like be very present in what was happening right in front of me, you know? And I had accumulated 13 felonies. I wasn't getting out of jail. And I sort of had a real give up moment where I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, 
not only can I not do it, but like I'm literally trapped and like there's no amount of, you know, saying wrong place, wrong time or, you know, having my parents give me a hand like I was beyond anybody else's help. So, you know, as you guys know, I, I spent my first year sober in jail and I think I didn't even know my first year sober that I wanted to be sober. I just knew that I didn't want the other thing. Yeah. But, like, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to AA. I'd been in meetings when I'd gone to rehab. I'd been to rehab, like, eight times at that point or nine times. But I didn't ever really... All I remember is, like, being under 30 days and kind of standing up and, like, flouncing over to get my chip and sort of seeing if any of the guys were looking at me. You know, I don't really remember anything about steps or program. I just... That was about it. So I didn't really have a framework for understanding things. But... um you know, I was in I was in jail. I spent my first year in jail. I should have done a lot longer, but I got very fortunate with a good attorney and, you know, family support and all that. So I got a year in jail and then a year and a half in a treatment facility court ordered and all that. And um and that's how it started, you know. And so my first year was really about like I didn't have the solution yet, but I was done with the problem. So I was kind of in this like no man's land of weird feelings and behavior and What did that feel like? Um, can you even remember or is it like, no, I mean, I honestly don't feel like I was a human being for that year of my life. Like I felt like I was on autopilot and there's like parts of you that you have to just sort of turn down, shut off just to kind of get through it because it's like the most dehumanizing experience. And you know, the jail that I was, the part of the jail I was in, it was 22, 23 hours a day in a seven by 10 cell. You get out one to maybe two hours a day to walk around, to watch TV, to make a phone call, take a shower, and the rest of it, you're in a cell. And so to, like, as a human being, to get through that and to get through being treated like subhuman by the people that work in there, you know. So I think that I kind of got through it because I just wasn't even all there, you know. That makes sense. Yeah. And 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 also I sense a theme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, and, you know, the other thing which I've told you guys about, but, like, I I had actually a cellmate for a period of time who has, is now doing life without parole, and she was in there for murder. But she really introduced me to, like, she was very religious, which is not my speed at all, but she had the more faith than anybody I'd ever met, and I didn't even really know what faith was, but she had this, like, sense of, like, everything's going to be okay, and she even is like that now because I still write her and she's oh in prison until, you know, she's probably never going to get out. And she didn't, she was just present for murders being committed and didn't do anything to stop them. And she didn't actually do, the, you know, so crazy. But, um, you know, but she introduced me to like this idea of like being okay in turbulent times, you know, being okay with everything on the line, with a lot to lose. She had kids, she couldn't see, you know, all this stuff. And she, so I had this sort of like tiny little buoy I could hang on to for a little while. And then when I got out and the solution was kind of presented to me that I got through the 12 step, I was like, oh, okay, you know? Um, so it felt a bit like holding my breath with small grabs of a little mm. buoy, you know? Oh my God, it's so funny though. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we've had conversations before that are like, you're like, I don't know why I'm just like so, I'm so resistant to like committing to this one thing where I'm kind of like doing one thing or being kind of like feeling trapped in like a job or even a relationship (laughs) or any of that stuff. I'm like, 
Of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you were trapped in a place for like, you know, the first two and a half years of your recovery. Yes. Like, of, and then, you know, kind of within a job where you were essentially like tied to somebody specifically 24-7. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like, wait, like the, con- like if we broaden the scope, this totally makes sense and maybe like, that's fine, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. But like, you know, the, the idea that we're all like, wow, like chin scratching, like, I wonder why it's so difficult to commit. <laughs> oh, I know. I wonder why. No, I mean, I think I feel like anxiety at like thinking that I don't have complete freedom at all times, you know? in a very physical way like I I feel an immense amount of like emotional and spiritual freedom but I think I literally have that with physical freedom too you know like I part I'm sure that's part of why I travel so much too and also like the dissociation that you put yourself the dissociative state that you put yourself in while you were in jail yes to get through stuff exactly I mean you know and and that persists at times in my life right yeah it's yeah. so funny though, because I wonder if it, if that's kind of true, like outside of an experience that severe. Like I know that my stuff comes up around, like I feel like I structure and kind of like rhythm, and like kind of keeping things really feeling like I know what's going to happen and I can plan and it feels stable. Yeah. Like that makes me feel really safe because prior to having that as a result of recovery, like that I learned in treatment, like I was just like, I didn't do laundry for like a year and a half. I would just buy like new A shirts at like Kmart <laughs> and then just awesome. be like, these are dresses. I'm fine. To wear them as dress. That's yeah, amazing. There's two pairs of stockings that they're pants. Like <laughs> it's like very electric flash at the time, but like, I love it. And on cocaine. So I had no feelings, but like that, I was just like, this is, this is my lifestyle. And it's normal to me. It, yeah, totally. Yeah. And like, and now I'm like, I need to know like <laughs> what my workout is and like, like the two things I'm doing tomorrow in order to feel safe and secure. And then I chose a job as a DJ, which doesn't make any sense. But, um, <laughs> and Rose, like, I wonder what you're kind of like the, what it looks like for you to kind of feel safe and comfortable and like in flow versus what it felt like when you were out. I don't know because I feel like drinking and using was actually a very structured thing for me. Mm. I had a a really compartmentalized identity around that part of my persona, which I think that my creative work gave me so much focus and saved me. Mm. And from a young age, I was performing from like the age of 11, 12 and being in theatre was was my hideout and I wouldn't let anything get in the way of that you know a lot of people like even at drama school would go drunk on stage and I was just like it's it's kind of like my church no like nothing touches that and then when I moved to France and I lost like any sense of purpose that's when the wheels fell off and Mm -hmm. then the structured kind of Thursday Friday Saturday night thing or even like Thursday Saturday night thing just got completely, I was like, oh, wait, I don't give a fuck about anything anymore. Yeah. This is the thing. This is about. the thing that I care about, and this is the thing that makes me feel strong and powerful. Mm. And so being in a different country and just having come out of a really long, intensive relationship and and just suddenly just being like, no accountability yeah, was absolutely um, liberating in a way. Yeah. But also led to my very, very quick demise. <laughs> like, and thank God know, for that. Yeah. yeah, in a way, like, 
I mean, it was definitely not, you know, coming to Paris, the dream that everyone's like, oh, I'm going to do that. It's like, no, I ended up in a treatment centre here and a shitty fucking halfway house, you know? And, like, that's my Paris story. (laughs) You know, it's very different. But And then the sort of fluidity that I find now in recovery, like, I get very stressed around a lot of structure. Like, it makes a much more sort of lean into where Lily is. They'll probably sit somewhere between the two of you Mm -hmm. in that is that I get very, like, oh, I don't like too many plans. I don't, I find mm-hmm. things very stressful if I have to... I think that's one of my biggest fears about being a mother because I want to be consistent for somebody yeah. else because I know consistency breeds security, right? Yeah. And safety, and I'm scared in a way that I won't be able to offer her that. That mm. Having said that, I'm actually better offering it for other people than I am for myself, ironically, mm. and, like, finding where that is so I don't know I have like a different relationship with structure and fluidity like I I can kind of oscillate between the two and I enjoy I need the dance between the two to feel well yes like I need like (laughs) absolute freedom but then sometimes I really need to know what like okay that everything's set up like everything's sorted and and it's it's weird because I get really specific around certain things like creative things need to be very structured for me mm. however where they want to done potentially yeah, yeah or for a lot of people like creativity is like a place to absolutely let go and be free and for mm. me it needs it needs very clear kind of structure and whereas like things that are i don't know things that are like highly structured i need freedom around yeah. you know like working out i could never get a workout addiction for example because I just find the idea of, like, doing the same thing over and over again completely mind-numbingly, <laughs> like, dull as fuck. <laughs> yeah. And yet you're the one who does most of the kind of administrative organizing for sober sex hilariously. Like, yeah, but I really enjoy that. Yeah. It, like, I, like, get a real, like, kick out of structuring creativity. And I think cause that's because I grew up in such a wild, chaotic mm. environment. Structuring chaos makes me feel safe. Yeah. Voila. I love it. Love so, that. McGill's, that I often call Lily <laughs> Lil's McGill's. So, McGill's. Um, so, you, if you could, say, give one piece of advice to your younger self, what do you think it would be? I think that not to... Oh, hmm, that's a really good question. Um... I think it would be not to define myself based on what other people, what I imagine other people think of Mm -hmm. me or what their expectations are of me and just sort of allow myself to be my own creature, you know, molded Mm -hmm. by something greater than me, if that makes sense. Like, I think I just, I, I heard anything anybody ever said about me and those early messages I got that I was talking about just became something I wore as like this is me and to just not listen to that as much although I don't know that I could have done that any other way you know Um, to arrive at this point that part was necessary yeah exactly but I I, I sort of wish you know and as I'm sure a lot of people who've been through traumatic things you do think about like you know like one of my favorite books growing up was this like create your own adventure book I don't know if you remember those but you like go to a page and they're like if you go in the if you go in the tunnel then you can go to page 52 but if you go in the mountain then you go to page 12 and it's like leads you like and I often did you look at all the options oh my god of course yes I would choose the one and then I'd like go back and be like oh man should have been the other one um so glad I didn't die yeah halfway through the book (laughs) but like 
I sort of erroneously have taken that way too seriously in life of like that my whole life has been a choose your own adventure and if I'd only done this door then this would have oh, happened gosh. and I can I kind of you know wrongly imagine that like oh this would have gone this way if that but so I you know in that I have thought at times like what would I have been without that situation huh. without that trauma without that those messages and I sort of make up what my life might have looked like and the place I end up is never as good as where I am now. Mm. That's so beautiful. So a lot of like shitty pages to get to page, you know, 2021. <laughs> but yeah. like, I actually don't, I think that those things did enrich my life in, in how they sort of built me, you know? What a beautiful message. That is just truly yeah. beautiful for anybody who's struggling with trauma or working through that, like... Yeah. There is an, there's there, an out at the there, end. Yeah, there is somewhere that you arrive that I really do feel that. And, like, being able to be helpful to other people with that message or, you know, just being someone who understands just and when other people are going through pain that I kind of am like, I understand the depth of that, you know. Um, so it's like when I think about what I could tell my younger self, I guess in that it might be, like, ride the ride. It's going to... It's, it's going to turn out a way that you wouldn't have expected mm. and it's going to be okay. And you know? even better, potentially. Yeah, Than exactly. you might have expected. Exactly. And so often on this show, we talk about a sex ideal. Yeah. Do you have a current sex ideal that you're working with and what does that look like? Well, that's a good good question. You know what's interesting? And I'm actually going to look at... I did write a note about this. But, yes. um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's interesting because for a really long time, I thought a sex ideal was about all the things I wanted in the other person. Like, this person needs to be interested in this and treat me this way and maybe even look like this or have these... Design my own partner. And that's what I thought... A lot of people misunderstand it in that. Like, I've heard a lot of people being like... My sex ideal will be like <laughs> exactly. has a cat, good Christian like food. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because I then came to realize that a sex ideal has a lot more to do with how I show up in the relationship than because I'm going to show up in a way that's a constant dance with like the partner I'm with. It's like that's going to shift. So if I'm showing up a certain way and they're showing up a certain way, like, but the only thing I can control is the way I show up and who I choose to be with. And so I think that was like revolutionary for me to realize like, oh, I'm not trying to just like build a bear with my partner. I'm trying to like, <laughs> um, wait, that should definitely be like a, like a gay dating app, build a bear. Um, <laughs> um, grinder subgroup. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, that I'm actually trying to be someone myself within a relationship that, you know, and, and that's the, you know, it's so cliche, but this idea of like being the best version of myself in a relationship, you know, and I've had relationships where, you know, I, I, I feel fine, but like, I'm not really the best version of myself, you know, and I'm, I'm certainly not showing up for the relationship that way. So I think for me, you know, what that looks like is this idea of bringing out like the best in each other, of being willing to be honest and work through like really mm. tough moments. That's been new for me in this relationship because tough moments before for me, like I'm going to probably book a flight somewhere. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to sit this through. 
I'll just move on to the next thing where that tough moment is a couple of months out and then I can kind of, you know, get on to the next. It's like the, I didn't want to sit through that. Um, because I, for a long time had this fear that it was always going to come to somebody being like, you're dirty and broken, you know, because those were the messages that I had sort of taken on. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of felt like that was always going to be the end point of any sort of conflict. Right. And I don't feel that way anymore, you know? And so I don't want to say that like one relationship can be healing, but I think I did a lot of healing. Yeah. And then I, seven years of healing and seven years of healing with a lot of blips of like things that were not in line with the ideal of how I wanted to show up. And was sort of like primed and ready for a relationship that kind of delivered me that the last little while. Not to say I'm at any end point and we no. don't, we have our things that come up like anyone else, but like I felt ready to be in a place where I could be honest, you know, about all of it and, and walk through what that looks like. Um, you know, and I think like, I mean, then there's the small things like, encouraging creativity in your partner supporting them in in their Mm. in their creative Mm. life which is really important Mm. to me um I mean there's a lot of different things of sort of being willing to show up for them in the ways they need um you know like doing it doing like for me I mean this whole thing of being around children like I shared about has been revolutionary and so being able to kind of be part of a system too like that's a surprising part of my ideal that I hadn't really expected of just Mm. like being able to show up in love in ways that aren't just romantic sexual love and that's sort of been an interesting ideal well and also i think you were the first person to introduce me this concept of like you can have a a relationship ideal and you can have like a a non-relationship ideal like how can you be in in like sex or dating around like Mm. and have a kind of map for yourself that you that you make with kind of a divine inspiration of like god what do you want me to 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 yeah. behave like in these relationships and can, like and actually that idea kind of carried my last inventory yeah just like because we can we talk yeah the last stuff. <laughs> <laughs> full disclosure and it was very helpful to kind of be like oh like the the places that need work here are kind of swift and sure if it's not the right thing as opposed yes. to like lying to myself and be dishonest with others about who mm. I actually am you know mm. and so thank you so much for that insight yeah. because I think it can be really helpful to, to people who might be like what if I'm not in a relationship like or yeah. what if I don't want to be like how do I navigate that how do it's I look like, at the other side of that yeah and it's like oh I can actually have a set of ideals that I would like to live up to for myself in dealing with people who yes. are you know even one night stand relationships because it's still mm. human well that's <laughs> right. exactly you know I'm glad that you brought that up because I'd almost even kind of forgotten about like that that you know I, at one point I did write like a sex ideal for a non-relationship sex ideal for a relationship because up until then I'd kind of been like well, there is no ideal for non-relationship. It's just wild, no holds barred, do whatever you want, you know, crazy. And that was really rooted in a lot of selfishness because I just thought, well, you know, I'm not doing this to get to the end goal of having a relationship so I can behave however I want and treat people however I want. And that's not neither realistic nor kind nor really the way I want to show up. Like, And I don't think it's actually really indicative of who I am either mm-hmm. but but this idea of having a sort of ex, like a sort of ideal boundaries expectation of how I can show up within a non-relationship too and be kind and honest and take care of myself you know the same I love that so yeah I'm glad you brought that up because 
you know, I was thinking so much about relationship ideal, but that was really, that guided me for a little while. For yeah. Sure. And I think also like, you know, you were talking about, you didn't kind of just like push a button and magically become available for this. Like it was the yeah. process that kind of Big allowed process. you to like do the work to be prepared to be in this relationship. And then actually like the next, the, like there's only so much you can do alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the yeah. next phase is like, actually we have to like, sit through this together which is terrifying and like whew, like that's hard you know yeah. to not like to not run away or to not just be like this is too difficult no thank you mm, you know because exactly. like that's the next round of healing and like one of the questions were like how did you how did you come into your sexual power as it is now because you know we've heard a lot about trauma but then we've also like I experienced you as somebody who's like really recovered in this thank area you. today like the, today it's like as you said that you don't ex- you're not living on this old paradigm of like you're dirty and broken and no one loves you it's like that's no longer a truth that exists in your world like how sorry the dog's making noise how did you like how how did you arrive to that like that's a you know sea change it is a sea change you know and I think that like in some ways, like, there is that kind of entire psychic change element that happened in relation to sexuality, mm. um, and it just took a really long time. Um, I do think that, like, you know, really hitting a bottom with, with the sexual stuff, getting... I took certain things from different places. Like, I took things from therapy. I took things from 12-step program for sex. I took things from individual people who were really helpful to me, from books, from whatever, and... I sort of crafted like what in, in sort of a conscious way of like how can I kind of move through this, you know? And I think that like a lot of it is what I was saying of I actually have to say, you know, I keep talking about my partner's kids, but it has been really beautiful to experience so much pure love um both to and from, you know? And um I don't, they can't do anything for me, you know, like (laughs) I don't have any motivation for treating them any kind of way like I would with an adult in the world. All they can do is just be there with me and be a kid and and Mm -hmm. have fun and be loving. And they don't value me for the things that I do or that they know about or that I was, you know, this, I was in jail and that I've had this big bottom and this high highs and, you know, travel. They don't care about that. They just care about how does it feel right now to be with this person? Mm. And, you know, I think for me, like, a big part of the recovery around this has been grounded in my relationships with people who don't have anything to get from me beyond just mm. being, you know, because I, you know, and also in that, I mean, my relationships with women. Like, mm. <laughs> I think, you know, so much of my relationships felt transactional before I came in, um, and like, I didn't really have a lot of relationships with women because generally speaking, I didn't really feel like I had that much to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. It was like, I didn't want to be seen. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I thought, I know how to do the whole song and dance for men. Yeah. Totally. I know how to be loved and adored. I remember I, when I, 
celebrated a birthday once in a in 12 step and I took a cake I remember I had like six dudes give me my cake when I had three years and I look back on that and just go oh my god oh my god um because how often is that the case exactly (laughs) exactly and they were all like 20 years older you know just all this stuff and I'm just like ugh. reminds me when I went to rehab I threw a big party in Paris going to rehab and like literally everyone around the table was somebody I'd slept with oh yeah. And it was my party. You're like, oh, hi. my husband, because he was there too. And I was like, I thought with that one, that one, that oh one, that God, one, that one. And it, yeah, he knew. Oh, I mean, he sport. knew. He knew because my whole identity was around who I fucked. Yeah. And like, I remember when I met him, I was like, you know, I've slept with a lot of people, you know, because I, and he was just like, why are you telling me this? And it was the first time that I felt I just needed him to know that I had power in that mm. area. And like that's so painful and hurtful, yeah. <laughs> like to oh. say that to that to someone, oh and invite them to my rehab party, going to rehab party with all of these guys, like these oh French Italian like collection. First of all, you're going away for three months. <laughs> it's going to be changing. Well, exactly, and that's like stepping away from like an abundance of sort of empty relationships in that sense, you know, and. Mm stepping into I mean really like relationships with the two of you with a couple of my friends in LA have just been so formative for me because it's like I was saying you don't value me for my sexuality that's not what my worth is to you right um you know like I remember when I started becoming friends with women and I'm like I hung out with them once and I'm like, oh, they're just going to figure out that I'm a dud, you know? And then, and then they'd call me back and I'm like, why are they calling me? What do they yeah. want? You yeah. know, like if it's not this. And yeah. I mean, it sounds so silly, but I really felt that way. And I think, I think for me, building, leaning into those relationships with women, finding that love with these kids, with my partner, mm-hmm. you know, finding out that there's more that people attach to with me than, because when I can't do those things, who am I? And people mm-hmm. still want to be around me, even if I'm not doing all the exciting stuff, you know, I think it's really, all of this behavior has really been about my relationship with myself. And as that mended, I became like, I could show up with my, you know, with my partner and all that too. Right. Oh my yeah. God. Right. The best. But wait, before I rose, I can see you here like pawing at the ground. God's lightning round. I'm pouring at the ground because I'm so hot. Oh my God. Oh, you so have to pee? Okay. I'm just going to ask, I'm just going to sta- make one more broad statement about my love for you both. Um, but like, you know, I think that that speaks a lot like to, you know, relationships with women broadly. And I know we have a lot of friends in common who are meaningful and, and, you know, kind of powerful forces in our life. But also, yeah. like, I know that we ha- have three kind of triangulated conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like... Absolutely. I'm so fucking conflict avoidant. It is unbelievable. I don't like confrontation. I don't like arguing. I would rather just, like, fucking freeze you out and wait for me to die <laughs> before, like, talking about an issue I have. And, like, the fact that we've you know, been through kind of different rounds or different rhythms of that mm. within our own friendships, like both individually and yes. as kind of a trio. Like, and we can Whoa. sit here today and feel like safe and held and nourished mm. by this friendship. I think it's yeah. like, I didn't know about that. Like, I didn't know that that, I'm getting so emotional. Yeah, I didn't too. know that that like, um, that was the fruit. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and so thank you for, yeah, for, love you guys for so like, much. you know, like, you know, having space to teach each other that and like ride it out, you know, because mm-hmm. like it could like, again, there's no makeup sex. Yeah. Well, exactly. This, yeah. Sober sex is the makeup sex. <laughs> yeah. Getting through that stuff. Yeah, dude. It's, it's like, mm. you know, 
there had been times in my life where I would have been like, all right, it's over. That's it. It's a wrap yeah. on that friendship. Yeah. Moving That's on. That's so like, much <laughs> like, I'm just so much more comfortable with that. And yeah. with both of you, the, exactly the same. I just want to replicate like, and also feel really emotional because like, this is the last episode I'm going to do before I have a baby mm. and be with you on. It feels really beautiful that we get to do this. Yes. <laughs> Oh, everything's changing. <laughs> Everything, they're crying. Oh my God. But both. yeah, thank you. And Lily, thank you for just sharing so vulnerably and honestly yeah. today. It's really beautiful. Let us get, before I just start crying <laughs> again, um, can we go into the lightning round? Yes. yes. Okay. So, what is your favourite meal? Because we know you're a real foodie. Oh my God. Um, uh, Noma, Mexico. Should I explain that? Or yes. Or just say uh, it's a restaurant in Copenhagen that did a pop-up in Mexico and a small thing about it. I, I was supposed to go with a guy who was sort of an ambiguous friend, which I had a whole lot of those going on, you know, and he didn't cut on the flight at the last minute. And so I went alone to Cuba for a week. And then I went to this dinner that was this extremely special dinner. And I flew in a girl or she flew in to meet me, a girlfriend of mine who'd never had a fancy meal like that in her life. <sighs> And we had the time of our lives, and it was the most delicious meal oh my ever gosh. So it was oh, kind of so like a epic food story. <laughs> epic food. It was an epic food story, for sure. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Okay, so I actually read that, and this started a really interesting conversation with, with my partner. So, anyways. Um, Wait, we shouldn't have sent you the fucking lightning round. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Secret! Anyway, oh, I'm okay. glad you thought about okay, it. Okay, I did. Okay, well, if it wasn't flying, obviously, I would love flying. But my <laughs> thing would be... To be able to, when I meet someone and shake their hand or interact with them, that I'd be able to see, like, fl- flashes of everything that major that had happened in their life. Like, as if when they were dying, they saw, like, the sort of Rolodex yeah. of their life, but to see it about them. Oh, oh my God. That could that's be so, so scary, so epic. That's yeah. such an epic superpower. <laughs> I know. That's why I was saying it should be a movie. Like, yeah. Anton yeah. and I were talking about it being a movie. But it's like... I feel like I would have a greater degree of compassion and connection with everyone else if I could just see them as a human being. I feel like as an empath, I have that. You, that and would... It would be... It's it would really too stressful. Overwhelming. It would be too much. Yeah. I already feel like I get that. I get near people and I'm like, they've been through something. And they're like, they're just regular. They work at the bank. Oh and I'm God. like, it's something. I, no, I would like that. I would really like to really? have context of it's people. It's very tiring. Very low yeah. stories. But I also recall, like, I'm a, I'm on a meditation retreat with everyone's hero, Tara Brock. Ah! And, uh, <laughs> afterwards, like, I, like, arrived in Grand Central Station after being, like, upstate, like, meditating Oof. for a weekend. It was just, like... I see everybody as a person. Oh my god. And it was just, it was too much. Too much. In a city, it's too much. What turns you on? Um, in, in what way? Any way you want to take it. Um, what turns me on? I mean, for all the talk I've done about this, to be honest, adventure really turns me on. New experiences turn me on. Um, (laughs) you know, being in the wild turns me on. I mean, all that stuff really does. Um, uh, good food turns me, you know, all that. Yeah. Nice. All the things. Nice. Um, well, who is the celebrity or artist whose sex magic you most idolize or relate to? This is interesting. I mean, this is actually really funny because this person had literally zero sex magic, but I, you know, I love Joan of Arc. <laughs> it's not about sex magic so much as just like she stood for who she was and what she believed integrity. in. She had enormous amount of integrity and I mm. could like think of her as that warrior in the rest of it. And then also, you know, this kind of, there was somebody else who I really appreciated, which I'm, 
I haven't heard every episode. I don't know if it's been discussed, but I may destroy you. Have you seen? Oh yo. Oh yes. And like okay, Michaela Cole, like oh. for for her honesty, vulnerability in that, Everything like she just does it for yeah. me. She's I think so she's unbelievably such a cool. badass. Yeah. What are you most looking to forward to about hosting a podcast about sex? <laughs> you know, really I honestly think like hearing other people's stories and experiences and, and having kind of a new, and I'm probably learning a lot too. I mean, but yeah. I love hearing about, I mean, it's kind of like what I was saying. I want my super, superpower to be, I love hearing about what makes other people yeah. the person they are sitting in front of me today and what mm. have they learned and lived through. Nice. Love it. And where can people find you on the internet? Oh, um, on the internet, I you know I should be doing a lot more and websiting and all that good stuff. You have a badass Instagram. Do I do Instagram, Instagram at Lily Noel, so L I L Y N O E L L E is my Instagram. And what's Gidget's Instagram? Gidget's Instagram <laughs> is Gigi Smalls, G I D G E Y S M A L L S. Instagram. Yeah, um, she's the cutest yes. dog maybe in the universe. Sorry. And she's <laughs> extremely well-traveled. She comes here to Paris with me. She's been to like 12 countries, I think. Holy shit. She is. Oh, she just looked up. Yes, she's that's like, you, Gage. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I had a rough start in life, but she knows that she now is like a traveling extraordinary. Oh, she is. Yeah. yeah, she started on the streets stray, and now she's really come into herself. So. Woo! Lily, <laughs> thank you so much. You've been the yes. most amazing um, guest, and I'm so, so thankful to be like chucking that battle over to yes. you. I know you're going to have a Perfect. wicked time, the two of you. And I can't wait to listen to the episodes, and I can't wait to listen to this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Across the waves, across the wall, to shred the center.